This podcast is a presentation of Indianola First Assembly of God Church. For more information, please visit us online at indianolafirst.com. Did you all have a good 4th of July? Yeah? Amen. Feels good to have an extra day off. Sometimes you get an extra day off on Thursday, then you got to work twice as hard on Friday or Saturday, right? And so it doesn't feel like much, but uh, it's always nice to take a day off. It, se- it just seems like whenever we celebrate... Uh, Days like that, Memorial Day, Independence Day, or even Veterans Day, or, or even when elections are, and campaigning start, if you notice that that started up a little bit, um, I just find myself thinking not only about America, but about the spiritual climate that America is in. And I, I love, absolutely love this country. Love it. And the freedoms that we have been provided here, the freedoms that I've gotten to live with, that we've all gotten to live with growing up in this great nation. How many are thankful for that this morning? Amen. And I want to say I have the utmost respect for our men and women in uniform, our military, those that have bled and died for that freedom. I remember uh, listening to my great uncles talk about the Pearl Harbor and the battle, or about Pearl Harbor and the battles there and the, and the Battle of Midway. And my dad was in the Navy towards the end of the Vietnam War, and I remember the stories of heroism that they would talk about. And uh, we, would, we would sit and listen to them around the fire and just be awestruck at what they had been through and what they'd seen. I, I remember Bob Bash telling war stories. I remember Bob Bash Sr. telling war stories. Anybody in here? couple of you remember that just awesome and to hear about that heroism and I even remember when I was a kid uh, we would play war and and uh, we would act out those stories that that uh, we had heard our our uncles our great uncles our parents talk about Um, but again as an adult and as a Christian my mind always drifts back to the spiritual climate in which we find ourselves living I will never marginalize the sacrifices made for our freedom. But I see in this country a switch in the mindset of the people. If you remember your history, the pilgrims came here to escape religious persecution and to have freedom of religion. And this country broke free from Great Britain's control. uh, And one of their main motivations was to have religious freedom. They wanted religious freedom to worship the way that they see fit. But we now have a country where many who live inside the bubble of that freedom that so many people died for, that so many people gave so much for, those, there's so many within that bubble that desire freedom from religion and not freedom of religion. And church, it's time to become involved and rise up again to defend those freedoms. Yes, from those outside of our borders that would want to come in and take it from us, but more importantly, We must defend against those, or just as importantly, I should say, not more importantly, just as importantly, we must defend against those that would seek to destroy them from the in, those freedoms from the inside out. You see, we need a nationwide, Holy Spirit-led, Pentecostal revival to once again sweep across this land that we love so dearly and change hearts and minds and attitudes to change the spiritual climate in which we live. I I, I love the military again. I don't want to take anything away from them. Thank God they protect our borders. Thank God that they do what they do. Amen? 
And our military is so amazing that I fear we won't crumble from the outside in, we'll crumble from the inside out. Because just as the military is focused on watching our borders and protecting our freedoms abroad, we as a church, as the army of God, have to protect those same freedoms from within this great nation. It's the truth. And we need revival. That's what has to happen to do that. So when I say revival, I'm talking about that which has been alive at some point, but is now dead and bringing it back to life. You can't revive something that was never alive to begin with, right? So something that was alive, that has grown, they're, they're, they've grown cold, they, they've died, they, they've cooled down, we could even say it that way. And we need to bring that back to life. It's revival, and this nation needs it, or we stand, not, uh, we stand to lose not only the freedom to worship in the way we desire, but the freedom to worship, period. I've never heard so many people talk about just God in such an offensive, we don't need him, get rid of the whole idea of religion kind of way. It's unreal. And the church can't sit by idly and watch it happen. Or we'll lose those freedoms. Some people might say, well, that's a little much, Pastor Barry. I don't think it's quite that bad. You're kind of... Don't fool yourself, church. If the people of God continue to operate prayerlessly and powerlessly, which they try to all the time, by the way, if Christians continue to live mundane lives with zero spiritual fruit and are okay with it, if churches are satisfied with programs and the status quo instead of reaching their communities for Christ, we're going to lose those freedoms and we won't even realize it's happening. They'll just be gone one day. In the Old Testament, Samson fell into sin. He had taken the Nazarite vow, which included not touching anything dead, refraining completely from alcohol, and not cutting his hair, yet he touched the dead carcass of a lion he killed when he got the honey out of it. Remember that? He found himself in a vineyard where they made wine. He, he shouldn't have even been near that vineyard. and He was there. He became so spiritually lazy that he let his guard down and Delilah was able to cut his hair. And in Judges 16, 20, the second part of that verse, part B, it says, but he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. He got up and said, I'll shake these Philistines from me. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. And I think that in many church circles today, the Spirit of the Lord has departed from them and they don't even realize it. They're asleep in the light. They've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but, they are, they're, they're, but, are, but they're satisfied to do nothing with that knowledge. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Praise the Lord. We love Jesus. He's wonderful. Yay, God. And then we walk out the door and don't do anything. Our lives are busy. Too busy to share in the great commission that he's called us to. Folks, that's a church, when the, when, when, that's a sign that when the church begins to grow cold, when they don't feel like they need to do anything, or maybe they just feel like they can't do anything, They've lost faith or they lost hope. They've lost some kind of a, a urgency within them. That is the sign that we are in desperate need of revival. 
We need it. We need it. I want to show you a picture. I've shown this graphic before, if you want to throw it up there. This is the uh, political cycle, you could say. It is, it is a really cool graphic, and a lot of you have seen this before, like I said. But look up there in the top where it says freedom. That's, we experience freedom in this nation, right? And freedom leads to abundance. And abundance is wonderful. We all want abundance. We all, all want our needs met. We don't want to lack anything. And freedom leads to that, and it's wonderful. But then when the abundance um, becomes so much part of our life that we grow a little callous to having it all, boy, did I learn that when I went to Botswana. How we have so much, and so much of the rest of the world has so little. But we start growing selfish when we get callous to that abundance. We're like, well, we got a lot, but man, we need more. Well, I just bought a bigger house. Well, I need a bigger one now. I just got a nicer car. I need a nicer one now. Selfishness. It's all about me and what I need, and I need more, and I need more, and I need more. And that selfishness then grows to complacency. The complacency grows to apathy. Apathy grows to fear. We don't want to lose anything that we have. We want it all. And when it starts to be, look like we're going to lose some of it, we get fearful that it's going to all go. You know what? The best thing that could happen to some of us is that we lose everything because we'd find everything in Christ then. And that's a hard thing to say. I get it. But when our stuff has us and we don't have our stuff, understand what I'm saying? That's an issue. And a lot of Americans suffer from that without even knowing about it. When fear sets in, it leads to dependency eventually, where we're dependent on everything being given to us. There's 50% of the nation right now in America that's dependent on getting free stuff from the government. Dependency. And when you're dependent on somebody, that somebody can control you, can't they? That dependency eventually turns into bondage. Because of that control. And then that bondage will begin, we'll get sick of it, and we'll begin to get faith once again. And that faith will rise up within us, which will turn into courage, and that courage will step out and fight for freedom, and the circle continues. It's a very interesting graphic, isn't it? And can you not see that in many nations at work today, and even in ours? What should happen is we experience freedom, we experience abundance, and instead of letting it grow selfish, we should be constantly praising God for all that we have and taking that which we've been given and using it to do something for God's glory and turning that back into faith. So abundance to faith, back to courage, back to freedom, to abundance, to faith, to courage, to freedom. And we should circle around there, but our human nature takes us different places, doesn't it? Our sinful human nature. So over the next four weeks, we're going to dissect the verse that really gives us the recipe for seeing a nation revived. And we will be preaching in accordance with the book of the month this month. If you haven't ever read this book, you need to read it. If you've read it, you need to read it again. It's a short read. Anybody can read this book. And if you say, well, I don't like reading, then, you know, um, I, can't, I, I can't help you. This is the easiest book you'll ever read. It's so simple to read, it's unreal. You could probably read it in two hours. Pick up the book. We don't have, it didn't come in this week. That's why we're doing a sign-up thing. But as many people that want it should sign up back there, and we will make sure we'll have all the copies here, even if we have to drive there and get them, right, Pastor Bryce? But it's a book by Bob Vanderplatz, our, our own Iowa 
Bob Vanderplatz called If 714. And we'll be using this book to develop this series for the next four weeks. But this recipe verse that both the book and the series will go over for the next four, four weeks is found in 2 Chronicles 7.14. And by the way, next Sunday is 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. So I want to start this morning with the word if. Everybody say if. if. What a great word. In the New International Version of the Bible, it's used over 1,500 times. The very utterance of this word calls for a decision to be made by the one whom it's directed at. They have a choice to make, and this little word is calling them to make the choice. In the Bible, this word always follows a promise or a predicate to a promise. And this is to say that the promises of God most often, and I would say every time, but most often have conditions attached to them. You ever notice that? It's very important for us to understand this. Let me give you an example. Malachi 3.10. Pastor Donnie alluded it today when he was talking about the offering. It contains a promise. Malachi 3.10. contains a promise from God to his people that he will open the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you won't have room to receive it. God loves you so much, doesn't he? That he will open the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you don't have room to receive it. Let me ask you something. Do you think you have room to receive it? How many want God's blessing? I mean, I could receive it, right? His word says you, you don't even have enough room to receive all that he wants to give you because we can't imagine that big. We can't think that big. God wants to pour out so much blessing that you don't have room to receive it. What a great promise. What if we walked around and just claimed that promise all the time? Wouldn't that be good? God's got so much blessing for me, I don't even have room to receive it. I don't have room to receive it. It's coming down. I feel it. Here it is. Here's more blessing. More blessing. I don't even have room to receive it. I'm overflowing. My cup runneth over, right? That kind of stuff. And we get excited about these promises of God, and we fail to look at the conditions of those promise, promises that the word if presents. There's a, there is an if that predicates this promise. That if is the little two-letter word that puts conditions on it. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and test me in this, says the Lord. Test me and see if, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you do not, that you do not have room to receive it. If, what is, what's, the, what's the condition? Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And, you know, Pastor Barry, you're always talking about money. Quit talking about money so much. You're making me mad. Um, I'm telling you what, Jesus talked about money all the time. And, and really, what is this verse saying? You want to receive the blessing that God has for you so much that you don't even have room to receive it? Then bring all your tithes into the storehouse. What's the storehouse? It's the place where you get fed. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. How many have ever tested God in this, like this verse says, and you've seen that that is absolutely 100% true? How many? Just raise your hand. Be proud. I know you're not supposed to let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, but I, the pastor's asking you, so vote. Great. A bunch of you have. Would anybody raise their hand and say, I would never, ever go without tithing because I don't want to live not under that kind of blessing? How many would say that? I know I would. 
it, it's lifeblood. It's lifeblood. Not just for the church. And trust me, the church doesn't need your money nearly as badly as you need to give it. And that's just, that, that, that's the truth. But there's an if there. It's a great promise, but it's conditional. The condition is always revealed by meeting the expectations of the if. And the word of God is full of these. Remember the story of Abraham praying for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's another great example of the word if used in scripture. This is found in Genesis 18. And the Lord had told Abraham that he was going to destroy them because of their sin. He's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. And always, always remember that sin can't go unpunished, all right? That, that's just something you always have to remember. Sin cannot go unpunished. It has to be atoned for by the shedding of blood because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, correct? Or, or if it's not atoned for, it has to be judged. There is no option on this. So Abraham, he pleaded with the Lord. And it, we'll pick it up in verse 23. Then Abraham approached him, the Lord, and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the, of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and, if the, and, and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the, all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. See how many times we've used the word if already? Then verse 27, then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. Because he's talking to the Lord pretty strongly here, isn't he? He's kind of bartering with him. What if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you, not will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if there was only 40 found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if, what if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if, only, what if I only find 20 can be found? Or what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will destroy it. I will, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. You're like, holy cow, you're pushing the edge of the envelope there, Abraham. What if only 10 can be found there? What if just 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Now, I, I want you to think about this in reference to America and the promise of God. Abraham is using the word if as if it's a bargaining chip. He uses it, he uses if in his questions to God, and then God in turn uses the word if in his answers. And this whole conversation gives us insight into the character and the very heart of God. God will spare the city if he can find just a small group of believers, a remnant of those who have been made righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of God. He won't just wash out the righteous with the wicked if he can find just a few good men and women. If he can find just a remnant. And that's great news for us here in America because it's not a stretch to call our nation a modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah. There are things going on in our country that probably exceed the, the, the evil that was even there. We live in a culture that continually rejects Christ 
and invents new ways of sinning every single day. But church, we're not too far gone. There is still hope. There is still a remnant of people. You are sitting in church today, and you are that remnant. And for the sake of you, I think we could make the connection that God won't wipe out this country for the sake of you as long as you are actively and consistently doing everything you can to win this country. There's still hope. There's still hope. Second Chronicle starts, 714 starts with the word if. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. It's a promise with a condition. And the word if points us to those conditions. The promise is that God will heal our land. How many know we could use a good healing in our land? To make us alive again, to change the spiritual climate, to make America great again, which only God can do, by the way. Spiritual renewal, Holy Ghost led revival of God's people. And if you're a parent today, you understand this word if all too well. If you eat all your dinner, you can have some dessert. If you clean your room, you can, find, you can have a friend over. If you do your chores without whining about it, you can hang out with your buddies tonight. If, 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 if. And it's a powerful word that forces a decision. Meet the criteria and this will be the result. Don't meet the criteria and this will be the result. It's a powerful word. And we sang that song, I, I, I said right away this morning, listen to the words or pay attention to the words. Most of us don't pay attention to words when we sing. But these truly are the days of Elijah. When the word of God is being declared in the midst of evil all around us. And these are the days of Moses when the very righteousness of God is being restored within God's people. I love this song because it compares everything to biblical times. And we're in the end times, are we not? These are the days of Ezekiel when God's people will call to dry, lifeless bones all around them and will speak life into them and those dead bones will live, a.k.a. the lost will get saved. These are the days of your servant David restoring proper worship and praise to our king. And even though these are days of great trials because of famine and other natural disasters and the darkness of sin all around us and wars breaking out not only between nations but between political parties, churches, and family members, even though all of this is going on, it will still be a time of a great harvest of souls because we are the laborers in his vineyard and we are those voices like John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness, in the wilderness saying, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. We sang it, right? Do we believe it? No? We sang it. Do we believe it? Yes. It's great, but it all hinges on this little word, if. God will heal our land when we meet the conditions that are created by that word. In his book, If 14, Bob Vanderplot says this. The if transitions the weight of responsibility. It encourages personal and corporate responsibility. It demands action, authentic, authenticity, and sincerity. And I love that. 
The word if, so powerful. The second part of this verse, my people. If my people, if my people, who is God referring to? How does one qualify or become a part of the group in which God calls my people? And these are important questions because clearly God didn't say if people. He said if my people. So who are they? First of all, the word my is possessive. It's possessive. When a parent says, my family, or when a boss says, my employees, or a pastor says, my congregation, there's a sense of ownership that exists in the mind of the person speaking. These are individuals that God has taken ownership of. And remember, he has given us all a free will to choose whether or not we want to come underneath that authority and control. His authority and control. He loves us enough to let it be our choice. How many are glad for choice? I mean, we are not puppets in some sadistic puppet show in which we are totally at the mercy of some divine puppeteer. Right? You awake this morning? All right. God the Father has given us choice. And we can choose to be in control of our own lives or hand the controls over to Him. And of course, we do this by receiving Christ into our hearts, asking Him to forgive us of our sins, and by accepting His propitiatory or atoning work on the cross. This act of our will, authenticated by the fruit that is on our spiritual tree, by the way, places us in this group of God's own people. We know that the Jews are God's chosen people, don't we? But we who have accepted him and his gift of salvation have been adopted as sons and daughters. We have been grafted into the vine as his word describes it. In John 1, 12 through 13, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, not nor of human decision or a husband, husband's will, but born of God. 1 John 3.10 says this. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. These verses are kind of in your face. Have you noticed that? Nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Not a child of God. God's people are those that have given their hearts to him, those that have placed themselves under his authority. And some people want to say, well, all people of the world are God's children. That is not true according to the word of God. Not all people are God's children. Only those that have accepted him has he given the right to become sons and daughters. Second Chronicles starts with the word if, which, we should, which should result in us instantly looking for the conditions and criteria that this two-letter word is pointing to. But the words, my people, make the statement that this promise is for those that have decided to be his people. Those that have decided to take the position of subordination. We are subordinate to the Lord and to his word when we truly give our hearts to him. In other words, let me just say it as simply as I can. You're not in the group of God's people if you live in a place of insubordination to God and his word. You can't be continually disobedient and be a child of God. You cannot live in rebellion against God and be one of his own. 
You can't look like the world, act like the world, be like the world, and then go to church on Sunday and say, I'm one of his kids. Sooner or later, something has to break. I know we all mess up and we all sin, and that that happens to all of us, but a true child of God hurts when they hurt the heart of God, when they sin. And they go to him and they repent as quickly as they can because they don't want to live in a place of sin. Someone will say, well, you just said I wasn't a child of God, and I don't appreciate that. Well, change your life. It ain't my fault. It ain't my fault. We have responsibilities as the children of God, don't we? You want to be his people? If my people, you want to be in that group? Then live like it. Live for Jesus. Let him change your life. Let him change it from the inside out. Let him make you clean. You know, run from sin. Hate sin. Learn to hate it with a passion. Don't see how close you can get to it without sinning. Well, if I just do this, it won't quite be technically sin. Blah, blah, blah. Come on. Run from that garbage. Amen? I mean, God loves everyone. I, I, that's true. Every person he loves with an everlasting love. But only those that believe upon his name. That's believe with such authenticity that your life lines up to his word. That's who the children of God are. That's my people. That's when you're part of that group. Does God own you? Are you his possession? It's up to you. He wants you to be his possession. He desires that you decide to be one of his own children. He even pursues you, but he loves you enough to not force himself on you. I mean, becoming his child, being in the group labeled his people, it's really up to you. Because he's already done everything he has to do to make that possible. He sent his only son and he died on the cross. And let's not forget what this means. The promise of 2 Chronicles 7.14 is for our land, for our nation, where we live. The land that I love, that we sing about. Our land being healed is up to God's people meeting the conditions. If my people, if gives the conditions, my people says it's us. The promise is not left is not to be left up to those like policemen or the military or the politicians. If the politicians of America, it doesn't say that. It says, if my people. And this promise of our land being healed is up to those of us who are God's chosen people. Those of us who accepted Christ. Those of us who are owned and controlled, willfully those of us who have willfully placed ourselves under his supreme authority. That's who this promise hinges on. It's your responsibility. Sometimes we think, God, why don't you just save in our nation? God, why don't you do this? God, why don't you make this happen? God, you're all powerful. Do this, do that, make this work, do that. And he says, it's up to you. If my people will meet these conditions. I'm standing here is, is, is saying this as clear as I can. He will heal our land. 
if his people, if his people meet those conditions. There's no question about it. It'll happen. Last part, who are called by my name? If my people, who are called by my name? Let me just make something very clear to you this morning. If you are one of God's people, you've accepted him, you've asked him in your heart, you're living for him, you're obedient to him, you've given him the controls of your life. If you are his, then you have been called. You have been called. Being called is not a phrase that is reserved for those who are in full-time vocational ministry. And we like to think about that. Oh, yeah, when did he get his calling? When were you called to be a pastor? I'm called to do this. Every one of you that's one of his children is called. The moment you accept Christ, you are called. I don't hear very many amens this morning on that one. I mean, you're in in the, the Lord's army the moment you accept Christ. Everyone that's accepted Christ, everyone in this place who's accepted Christ as their Savior has a call upon their life. And I talked about this a little bit last week. You are all ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church in America is full of bench warmers. What true revival does is it wakes up those sleeping saints and it causes them to shout, put me in coach, I'm ready to play. There should never be bench warmers in the church. Those that just or that, that just just those that are eager to do their part in the building of the kingdom of God. That's all that should be there. People that are eager to do their part in building God's kingdom up. Matthew 28:19, you guys know this verse. I, I think I used it last week, but it's so important. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a great commission verse, and that is your calling. Right there. It's the Great Commission given to all those that believe. And it can't be filled by expecting your pastor to do it for you. And it can't be filled by giving missionaries money to do it in your place. Giving is certainly a part of it. But you must actively engage in the going. You must actively engage in making disciples. I think I gave a statistic last week that 90-some percent, I think it was 94%, of Christians have never led someone to the Lord. I, I just want you to let that sink in a little bit. 94% of Christians have never led anybody to the Lord. I wonder if 90% or how many, what percentage of those 94% are actually Christians. Because don't, isn't it just automatic for you to lead somebody to the Lord? At least be a part of the process? Isn't that just part of it? I hope you don't feel like I'm beating the sheep today. I'm trying to encourage you. Well, it's not my thing to share publicly my faith. My faith is private. Well, then get a new faith. Because there's nothing in the Word of God that says your faith is your private thing. It's a personal thing between you and God, but it's not there to be, you know, covered up. You're supposed to let your light shine before men, right? Shine bright. So everybody will remember that, right? Donnie says two words. People never forget it. I preach up here all day long. Nobody knows what I'm saying. 
We're not supposed to just hide our faith and hold it for ourselves and maybe throw a little bit of it at our family here and there and then call it our jobs done. Man, we should be living out loud what God has done on the inside of us. He set us free. And notice this verse doesn't say, therefore, go and make disciples if you feel like it. Or go and make disciples of all nations if you have certain talents. Oh, so many people use that as an excuse. Well, I'm not really talented in those areas. I can't do anything. Wow. Like it depends on those who have talents, visible talents. Like that, it really depends on their talents. It doesn't depend on their talents either, by the way. Or it doesn't say, go and make disciples of all nations when you're young. I'm pretty old. I, it's time for the young people to take over the church, and I just need to step into the background. <laughs> Wrong answer. <laughs> Go and make disciples when you're old enough to do it. Man, there, there, there's scripture where Paul talks to Timothy, and he says, don't let people look down on you because you're young. You can be powerful in the Lord as a young person. Don't wait around until you're, well, I can finally be used of God when I'm 25, when I'm 30, when I'm 40. Maybe when I'm married, then I'll be used of God. Blah, blah, blah. And pretty soon you're dead and you did nothing for Jesus. You make excuses your whole life. It doesn't say any of that. It doesn't even say when the planets all align and everything in your life is perfect, go and make disciples. When you have no problems yourself, you can go and make disciples. I found out the more problems I have, the more easy it is to lead people to the Lord. Have you noticed that? Because you can relate with people. God, don't give me any problems. Just, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if our conversation with one another should be a little different. Hmm. Hi, Sandy. How are you doing? Amen. How's, the, how's your personal kingdom work going? Well, I'm working. <laughs> hey, Devin. Have you got to lead anybody to the Lord this week? Shouldn't we ask each other that? Shouldn't we do that? We're like, hey, how are you doing? Good. How's the family? Good. And you? Good. You see that TV show last night? Yeah, it was good. Do you love God? Yeah, he's good. Maybe we should talk differently and we should ask each other and encourage each other. I mean, that, that sounds weird to say. Hey, man, how are you coming along on your personal mandate from Christ to go and make disciples? Someone looking at you and say, you're a half bubble off. You're weird. But maybe that'd be better. If you have accepted Christ, you're called. You can't get around it. You can't get away from it. You're called. There's nothing you can do except reject Christ, and then you won't be called. And how many know that's not really a good option? Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called. He's, he's really authenticating those people that are his. My people who are called 
And then he said, then he even goes further. He says, called by my name. And that carries with it a deeper meaning than just merely being called. You are called when you become, by his grace and by your own free will, one of his people. But more than called, you are called by his name. That means all you do within that calling is for his name and not your own. There's a phrase that's been spoken in reference to prisoners on death row walking to their moment of execution. Dead men walking. Dead man walking, right? They say it as an expression that this particular person is as good as dead because of what they do and what they've done and where they're going to and what's going to happen to to them as they go. Now, if you take this phrase and you, you, you flip it on its head a little bit and you turn it around, we ought to strive to be dead men or women walking. Not that we're in jeopardy of losing our lives, but because we have already given up our lives. We've left our worldly lives behind us when we accepted Christ. At least we're supposed to. Sin no longer has a hold of us. We are dead to it. In fact, we should be dead to our old selves. The old Barry doesn't live anymore. That old Devin, you don't want to know her. Am I right? The old Donnie? <laughs> You don't, want him. you don't want him around. You kidding me? I wouldn't want the old Donnie near my kids. But the born-again Donnie, the Jesus Donnie, I want my kids to be around him as much as they can be. Dead to the world and dead to the way we used to be. We have been born again and have been made into new creations. The old has been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, praise God. And we are dead men walking, dead to the things of this world, yet we're alive to Jesus Christ. So we no longer strive to do things to prop up our names. You ever notice how the world does that? They do everything for their own name to be glorified. We don't do that. We are called by his name. We carry the name of Christ. We are Christians. The first part of Christians is Christ. We have his name. We bear his name. Because of we've accepted him. And we operate under the authority of his name. We pray in his name. You ever notice why we say, in Jesus' name, amen. Why do we do that? Because we're operating under his authority. We're putting his name in our prayer. We're praying in his name. And it is by his name that we lay hands on the sick in order that they may be healed. It is by his name that we declare his word. His name is now our name. We are a part of his family, and his name is Jesus. Most powerful name that there ever will be. It's the only name under, which, under heaven by which a person can be saved. And I hope and pray that we haven't taken his name in vain. You know, we, we hear that, do not take the Lord's name in vain, and we think that means swearing or using uh, words like GD, which, yes, that's taking the Lord's name in vain, sure. But I think it has a deeper meaning than that. Maybe it's taking his name, calling yourself a Christian, accepting him, saying, I'm a Christian now, but then doing absolutely nothing for the kingdom of God. That, that he gave you his name for a purpose. Don't let him give you his name in vain for no reason at all. You're a Christian. That would be taking his name in vain.
If my people who are called by my name. If points to the fact that there are conditions to the preceding promise that he's going to give you in this verse. So when you see that word if, you go, hmm, there's conditions. I better look at those. Great promise coming up, but there's going to be some conditions. If. My people. It declares that this promise is for those who are truly the Lord's possession. The real deal. Full, authentic Christians. People that love him with all their heart. I, I remember a story, and I, I think it was in uh, communist Russia that took place when um, there were some worshipers in a secret church, and they were all worshiping God. And the KJ, KGB came in with guns flashing, and there was about four of them or five of them or something like that, and they started yelling and saying, you know, you're worshiping God. This is illegal. You can't do this. I want everybody in here who's, who doesn't want to uh, stand up for the name of Jesus to leave right now. And a bunch of people left the building, and a bunch remained. And then the KGB put down their guns. They said, we just wanted to worship with real Christians. That's a powerful story. What would that look like in our setting? My people, real, authentic Christians, who are called by my name, if we have accepted Christ, we have a calling, and it is according to the name of Jesus that we operate within that calling. These are the people that qualify to have this promise. The promise of their land being healed. The promise of their being a fulfillment of that promise in their lives. Second Chronicles 7.14 is a recipe. It's a recipe for revival. And we have to understand that the promises of God have conditions that must be met. And we're going to get into those promises, uh, those conditions in the next couple weeks. We can't place the burden of responsibility on God and then get mad when he doesn't move like we think he should. We bear the responsibility. God is more than willing to pour out his spirit on us in a mighty way. We must do our part, and uh, we'll get to that next. What that part is, we'll get to that over the next few weeks. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First Assembly of God podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest message.